Um, if you were observant when you came in, you'll have noticed a stack of carpets. We're going to be having carpets by next Sunday. It's only taken seven months to get there, so very, very excited uh, about that. So um, we've got more and more of these heaters coming in, and next weekend we'll have carpets. So very exciting to um, continue and be warm, yeah. Next Sunday, look at the weather. It looks like it's going to be one of the coldest days of the year. But I'm just telling you, we're going to have warm carpets. I saw a funny meme a few months ago, and I've been debating, should I say it up front or not? But I want to say it. The meme goes like this. In the first frame, there's this Christian, and they say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know that verse? And <laughs> Amen. And then the next, the next like, frame, there's this other person saying, but Joe, you can't even come to church when it's raining. <laughs> so it's quite a joke because some of us, like we struggle when the weather's bad just to come to church. So next Sunday, I'm warning you, don't be like those people. Uh, but we are carrying on in the book of John. This is week 21. Uh, we're in John chapter 5. And I'm, I'm a bit nervous about today because like, I'm preaching the leftovers of the leftovers of this text. So two weeks ago, Vasen preached the exciting part, how this crippled man got healed by Jesus. And then Laney preached last week about Jesus debating with the religious leaders because they were so upset that he'd healed someone on the Sabbath and violated God's law and they'd missed the miracle. And I've got the leftovers. So I've never heard anyone preach on this text before. The Lord be with us all. That's all I can say. So let's read together John chapter 5. We're going to read from verse 24 and the rest of the chapter. It's a little bit long, but uh, stick with me. It's good to read the Word of God. John 5 and verse 24. Very truly. So the context is the same. Jesus is carrying on talking to these religious leaders who were miffed with him for breaking the Sabbath by healing someone. Very truly I tell you, this is Jesus speaking, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, that's God, has eternal life and will not be judged but is crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. He's saying it's coming now, those who are spiritually dead will hear God's voice and live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he's given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. In other words, it's going to be a judgment day. Everyone who's died will come back to life. Those who have done what is good will rise to live. And those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Isn't that beautiful? If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Who believes someone who blows their own trumpet? That's what he's saying, right? But there is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony is true. You sent to John, John the baptizer, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. 
John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. But I have a testimony that is weightier than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I'm doing, the miracles I've just done, testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You've never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently, because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, but you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I've come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you'll accept him. How can you believe since you accept the glory from one another, but you do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? But don't think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom, you, on whom your hopes are set. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Yo, there's a lot uh, in, this, in this text. But Jesus speaks about the authority that he has. How he's able to give eternal life to those who believe, to those who hear his, his word. How he's able to judge people. And that those who believe are going to rise to eternal life. But those who do not believe, who don't have faith, they will also rise, but they will rise to condemnation. And so to the Jewish people, to the Jewish leaders, this would have been like a phenomenal statement. How can a man say something like, if you hear my voice, you can have eternal life? Because Jesus looked like a person. He spoke like a person. He didn't float like an angel. Contrary to popular Renaissance art, he didn't have a halo. Jesus didn't glow in the dark. He looked and smelt and felt and walked and talked like a person. They thought he was a person. They thought he was a prophet, a great teacher. But here's Jesus claiming to be the Son of God, claiming to be God himself. And that's my first kind of big thought today is that Jesus claims to be God. He says, hear my word and have eternal life. C.S. Lewis said, if you look at what Jesus claimed, he either must have been insane to claim those things, or he was a liar, fraud, con artist, or he must have been God. Like there's no neutral ground when it comes to Jesus. And if he is God... And we believe he is. But if he is God, that's got some really big implications for your life and for my life. And let's just stick to the confines of this text. The first implication, A, is that this life is not the end. This life is not the end. He says those who have faith, those that God has saved, they will rise to eternal life. And those who do not have faith, those who have rejected God, those who are not saved, says they will also rise, not to eternal death, but to eternal condemnation. It would be much easier for those who reject God just to believe, oh, when I die, it's all over. 
We are annihilated. We are, there's nothing more after death. There's nothing after the grave. It doesn't matter what I do in this life because when I die, it's all over. It would be nice for them to think that. It would be nice for us as Christians to think that. We wouldn't have to worry about going on outreaches and preaching the gospel because when the unbeliever dies, well, that's all right. There's just nothing. Now, us Christians, we get eternal life. That's so cool. But nothing bad happens to them. They just cease to exist. But that's not what Jesus teaches. It's not what the Bible teaches. We will all rise to eternal life. One group to be with Jesus and God the Father. The other group to eternal condemnation. Many people live their lives on earth thinking they've avoided God. Flying under His radar. Thinking that he doesn't care, that he doesn't worry, that he doesn't exist, that he's not watching what's happening. But on, there'll be a day, friends, where there'll be no escaping, no flying under the radar of God. No hiding from God on that day. It will happen, Jesus says. This life is not the end. The second kind of big implication, number B, is that this life matters. How you and I live matters. It affects eternity. It has a bearing, has an impact on eternal life. And if you just look at Jesus' teaching, not even for a moment looking at what Paul says or what Peter says or what the other writers say, just looking at the Gospels and what Jesus teaches, over and over, repeatedly, he explicitly says, that when we die, there's going to be some kind of recognition, some kind of reward, some kind of inheritance, some kind of crown, some kind of ruling or responsibility that will be given to us in eternity, but it depends on how we live in this life. You can't ignore those scriptures. There's too many of them to say, oh, that's just whatever. There are so many scriptures that says what we get in eternity, depends on how we live in the here and now. And that's not to make us scared. That's just what Jesus says. That's what the Bible plainly states. And Jesus knows that as humans, we're quite fickle. Our hearts go all over the place. And so he says straight up to his disciples, do not store up for yourselves riches on earth, where moth and rust can destroy, but store up for yourselves riches in heaven. I know you're motivated by riches and treasures, fickle humans. That's okay. But, but make sure you store them up in the right place. Why? Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus doesn't condemn our fickle hearts, but he says, choose where you put your heart. We need to remember, friends, that our reward for serving God is guaranteed in the life to come. We may or may not get some of that reward here, okay? But it's guaranteed in the life to come. I remember God speaking to me so clearly on this a few years ago. It was Christmas time, 
We were down at my parents' place in KZN, and we'd had that year a big family in Daba, a big family meeting, all of my siblings and my parents, and my siblings are split between the UK and Australia and here, and we had this big on Zoom family meeting about you know, our parents are getting old and what happens when they die and their kind of their business interests and the family trust and and um, all these things, and there's a family trust because one of my siblings, because of their condition, can't actually take care of themselves very well, and who would manage the trust, and who the house would be sold, and all this kind of stuff. Quite hectic meetings to have, right, at Christmas time. And I remember, it wasn't on Christmas Day, it was in Christmas time, but I remember um, in a quiet moment, just having normal human thoughts, okay, well, when my parents die, I don't want them to die, I love them, but when they die, what does that mean? Who looks after the other sibling? Who manages the trust? Are we going to get some of this inheritance? That would be pretty cool. Just normal human selfish thoughts, right? I'm just a human. And I remember standing in the cottage of my parents', my parents property and looking out the window, I felt like God just whispered in my heart, your reward is not here. And I just like, it just settled like, whether I get anything from my parents or not, my reward is not here. We don't live for what we can get in this life. We live for God. We live for the God who died that we could have eternal life. And He will sort it all out in eternity. That's our focus. My second point this morning is that God wants our faith in Jesus to be firm. God wants us to be convinced. He wants us to be sure, to be certain about Jesus. He doesn't want the basis of our faith to, to be in doubt. He doesn't want us to be worried or anxious or to wonder about the basis of our faith. And so Jesus gives all these testimonies, all these things that testify to who he is. He says, I tell you who I am. I'm the son of God. I but you probably won't believe my words because who believes someone who raves about themselves? But if you don't believe my words, he says, believe what other people say about me. And so he talks about John the baptizer and how John had testified about Jesus. And then he says, well, even more important, even more weighty and significant is what God says about what I'm doing and saying. The works that God's given me, the miracles themselves testify to Jesus and what he did and what he said. They back up his claims. No other prophet had performed so many miracles. No other prophet sent by God had, had um, performed so many miracles in a short time. Such diverse miracles. Opening blind eyes. Lame people walking. Raising the dead. Turning water into wine. Calming the storm. There's no healing the leper. There's no other prophet in the Bible who did what Jesus did. It's undeniable that God sent him. God is backing up. And it's not that Jesus was doing these miracles to get attention and to draw big crowds to himself. The miracles show the compassion of God because he's healing people who are in desperate need. He's reaching down into their, their world and making them whole. It shows the heart of God for people. And the religious leaders, they did want miraculous signs, but they wanted a miraculous military political deliverer to ride in with an army and liberate them from Roman oppression. 
Jesus is trying to give them a clue. It's not going to happen like that. And we, or he says that the other um, witness or testimony are the scriptures. The Old Testament points to Jesus. Moses wrote about Jesus. And I guess we have the incredible benefit and privilege of being on this side of history and being able to have the whole Bible and to have gone through the Reformation and the Middle Ages and the Dark Ages and all the other ages. And we can look back and see how Christ fulfilled the law, how Christ was the great lamb who took away the sin of the world. We, we look back and we can see him filling up all those parts of the Old Testament, right? What a privilege we have in our generation to be able to understand that better than anyone else in history. And why is that important? That the Scriptures testify about Jesus so that our faith can be confirmed or can be sure, can be settled, can be without doubt, without, without a crack in the foundation. And if you look at the Old Testament, you know that there's over 300 different prophecies about Jesus that he fulfilled, more than 300. There are 48 of them, like a small set, that are specifically talking about Jesus, the Messiah, Okay, the one who would save people, the, the messianic prophecies. And university professors have calculated, what is the chance, what are the odds mathematically of one person fulfilling just the 48 by chance, right? Because if it's by chance, we can ignore the Bible as a great fabrication. You know, we can just do whatever we want. What are the chances of one person fulfilling 48 prophecies just by chance? You know what the answer is? They've verified this mathematically. One chance in one times 10 to the power of 157. What that means is a one with 157 noughts. That, that's a lot more than most of our bank balances, right? All of them combined. Mathematically, right? Just in the science field, anything smaller than one chance in one to the 50 is considered mathematically impossible. Not unlikely, not improbable, impossible. Now add another 100 notes. <laughs> and that's just fulfilling 48 of the 300, right? In other words, what Jesus did was not just a person by chance stumbling around, being born in Bethlehem, being born of a virgin, being born of David's line, God was directing history for thousands of years. But we can't understand 1 to the power of 157. So let's just take it down a level. What are the chances that one person could fulfill just eight prophecies? Surely any one of us could fulfill eight, right? If we knew about them. The chances are 1 times 10 to the 17. 1 with 17 zeros. So I've written that out in my notes here. I'm going to try and say the word of like, you know, 100,000. It is 100,000 trillion. Chances of one in 100,000 trillion. Now, a trillion is a thousand billion, and a billion is a thousand million. So it's like 17 noughts, right? But I'm sure we don't get that. So have you seen a two-rand coin? Okay. Think of a two-rand coin. Now imagine you had that many two-rand coins, 100,000 trillion two-rand coins. And on one of the coins, you took a little permanent mark and you made a mark. You make a smiley face. 
you know, two eyes, a nose, smiley face. And what you did, you took all these 100,000 trillion Turan coins and the one with the smiley face, and you, you started putting them here on the stage, right? All next to each other, all touching, and you filled the stage, and you filled... You filled this room and you went out down the street and you went to your house because you needed some refreshments and then you went in your, your whole yard, your whole house. You covered the whole suburb and you kept going, just like every coin touching, right? A single layer, a flat carpet, no, no ground to be seen. And you kept going the whole of Joburg. It'll take you a while, right? You kept going the whole of Gateng. You kept going. Every single piece of land was covered by a two-rand coin touching its neighbor all across South Africa. All the beaches, the Kruger Park, the Berg, the Karoo, the whole country, Turan coins, flat layered carpet, layer one. And then you did layer two. And you, until you had 25 centimeters of coins carpeting the country and the one with the smiley face. Okay? And you just put the smiley face one somewhere and you mixed them all up. <laughs> and then you took someone need like a volunteer. Who's brave? No hands. You took a vo another volunteer from another church. <laughs> and you blindfolded them and you said somewhere in the country is one Turand coin with a smiley face. Now you, now you are blindfolded. You don't know where it is. You can go wherever you want. Just, but obviously you blindfold it and you can pick one coin one time. The chance of you picking that one two-rand coin with a smiley face on 25 centimeters covering the country is the same odds as a random person by chance fulfilling eight prophecies. Friends, God wants us to be convinced that Jesus is the Son of God. I've been meditating on this verse this week, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul puts it like this. He says, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us. I try to explain this to my kids this week. And you know on cattle farms they used to, I think they still do, they take like a, a branding iron. They put it in the fire and they're like, they're like they scar the cow. And uh, the, the, the animal lovers, so this is cruel. I'm just telling you what they do. I'm not agreeing with it. <laughs> Be so careful what you say in this church. Eh? <laughs> so if I was a cat, if, if someone else was a cattle owner, um, they would put the initials maybe of the farm's name. And like, it's permanently scarred on the cow's rump. And if that cow wanders to someone else's farm or far away, like it always belongs to that owner, you can tell who that cow belongs to. Because it's, it's tattooed, it's, it's burnt, it's, it's branded there. And it's like God does the same spiritually in our hearts. When we are born again, He sets His seal of ownership. No matter where we wander, you peel back your heart says, I am God's. He set his seal on us. It's not something we have to do. It's got to be better to be God's child. No, no. He set his seal of ownership in our hearts. And then it says, he's put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what's to come. We have the, the Holy Spirit in us as a small down payment 
a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Wow. God wants us to be assured of what we've believed in. Point number three. Jesus places a very high value on the Word of God. He speaks about these scriptures that testify about Him, that the Old Testament points to Him, that Moses wrote about Him. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they also loved God's Word. Because Jesus says, you diligently search the Scriptures. They did. They loved the Word. But they were so taken by the Word, they couldn't see God in the Word. They were so locked into their own narrow, religious, rigid interpretation of the Scriptures, they couldn't see God when He showed up on their doorstep. Okay? They were so blinded. They weren't open to any other interpretation but their own narrow view. And Jesus says, the Scriptures in themselves, they don't have life. They point to me, the giver of life. And sadly, there are Christians who are a bit like these religious leaders. They're so locked into their own narrow view of Scripture, they miss God. They're unable to flex or even acknowledge there might be something outside of their own narrow view. On the other hand, there are plenty of Christians and, and sadly Leaders who are on the other side, they, they will distort the Scriptures a little bit. They will make exciting-sounding philosophies and doctrines that, that captivate our minds and attention, but have little to do with the Word itself. That's sad because many follow these people into error. I think, though, the biggest problem that we have when it comes to God's Word is that far too many Christians... We drift away from God's Word. Too many Christians live by their own ideas, live by the opinion of the masses or the prevailing ideology of the age. Too many believers pick and choose the verses that they think should apply to them. They, they pick and choose, ah, that doesn't sound nice, that doesn't, that's not important. They pick those that they think, that they think, are relevant on history. And so obedience to God's word has become optional. Many have distorted or have a distorted view of God and like a twisted view of how their lives should unfold because they've just read such a small part of the Bible and they get upset with God when their lives don't turn out how they think it should turn out. They just haven't read the rest of the Bible. Many are weak in their faith because they're feeding themselves a worldly diet and not feasting on the Word of God. Friends, it's a big reason why we're taking time to preach the book of John. It's going to take us two or three years. We'll do other stuff in between, sure. We don't want to miss over anything in God's Word that can help us. Even the hard stuff helps us. Often the hard stuff helps us more than the nice stuff. The vegetables are better than the, well, not better, but they, they're really important too. <laughs> it's why we're doing a monthly theology class, Bible studies. We don't want to miss over or have the wrong interpretation of God's Word because it can take us into error. Last month and this month, we're doing the end times. What happens when Jesus wraps up the world? You know what the book of Hebrews says? That's a foundational doctrine. Yo, I don't think any of us will ever understand it properly. 
but we must at least try and think about it correctly. So why are we doing theology? Friends, this, I don't know, I was in tears this morning. This thing of God's Word is so important. I can't, I can't stress it enough. Actually, I'm thinking about preaching the whole of next Sunday just on how to spend time with God, how to have a quiet time. It's that important. The Word of God. I don't want to make us feel bad because if we all had to say, this is how much I read the Bible, or like we'd all be embarrassed, right? Let's be honest, like we're all human. My aim is not to guilt trip us into feeling bad and whatever, but I want to inspire us to read God's Word. So I'm going to ask us to stand. Is Vasen around? Maybe Kelly's. Could you come back, come up and just play on the keyboard? I want, I want us to stand. I want to read out a text before we end. We're going to break bread while we worship in the last song. So if you didn't get one of these communion cups, I think the hosting team will just walk around with the trays. Please just get one. Um, but I want to read this quote, and it's from the Gideon's Bible. The Gideon's organization is an organization of people who, they want God's Word to be spread far and wide. And so what they do in hotels, guest houses, B&Bs across the world, in like the little bedside drawer, they put a Bible. So that if someone traveling for work or holiday perhaps wants to reach out and find God, the Bible's there. It's an incredible organization, incredible plan that they have going. And if you open one of the Gideon's Bibles, the preface, what it says about the Bible, I think is so incredibly inspiring. So I've got the words on the screen. I want to read through it slowly before we end this morning to inspire us around God's Word. This is what it says. The Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. In other words, they don't change. You can't change what God's decided. So read it to be wise. Believe it to be safe. Practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here too, heaven is opened and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly frequently and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. It is given you in life, will be opened at the judgment, and be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, rewards the greatest labor, and will condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. Doesn't that make you want to go and read the Bible again? Friends, what a gift God has given us in His Word. And I don't know about you, but I want to be a people. I want this church 
Like the early church, Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. I want us to be a church that devotes themselves to the Word of God. Not just 